Um, reading from Genesis chapter 22, which is also on page 22, if you've got one of these Bibles. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. Uz the firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was Rumor, also had sons, Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maka. Everyone, uh, it's really good to see you. Uh, thanks, thanks very much for having me back. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Micah. I'm a member here at the Gate Church, um, and uh, it's a real privilege to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, I've been thinking a little bit recently about advice columnists, you know what I mean? I don't know if anybody's, any, anybody's ever actually read any of them. 
uh, but they're kind of like the modern day equivalent of um, the, the, the ancient wise man or wise woman um, that people used to go and consult. Um, and now, the, the more you think about it, the more, the more serious that job becomes. Here you are, this quote-unquote wise person, offering out your pearls of wisdom to people with real lives, real relationships, and decisions. All of these things on the line, waiting to hear from you to weigh in. Uh, and at least back in history, uh, the uh, wise man or the wise woman, you'd be able to go and visit them. You'd be able to go and see them. Maybe get to know them enough to decide whether or not you think you can trust them, whether or not you think their advice is worth taking. Uh, nowadays, all, all that you've got to go on really is how per persuasive they sound and how famous they are. Uh, and those things will help you decide really whether or not you can trust them. Uh, their lives are hidden from us. And that's quite handy for them, isn't it? Because then they can just dish out their advice at arm's length without any spotlight on them. But the people that we give the right to advise us need to be worthy of our trust, don't they? They need to be able to back up what they're saying with their own lives. I, I personally, I think it would be a really good rule to, to, to insist that all advice colonists have to publish a short biography about themselves and about their own successes or failures in whatever area they're writing in and advising on. I think we'd be quite unlikely, wouldn't we, to, to put our trust in the relationship advice of a columnist who's never gone further than like three dates, or, or like the investment advice of this writer whose personal picks have been, you know, like MySpace or like Blockbuster or VHS as the next big thing. Um, but when things get difficult and when life becomes really chaotic or confusing, we're actually going to increase the level of scrutiny that we put them under. When the going gets tough, we need reliable and trustworthy people to carry us through, to reassure us that, that things are going to be okay. And, and the less trustworthy the person who advises us, the less weight their words should have. Um, like I say, in case you're new, uh, we've been looking over the last couple of weeks, um, sorry, a couple of months, at the story of the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we called it... Um, we call this series of sermons, The Faith of the Faithless. And that's because the story of Abraham is a story of faith. And while on the face of it, faith might be quite a reasonable thing to talk about. I mean, it's quite a Christian word. Uh, but when life gets difficult, when what seems obvious in the light becomes a lot more confusing in the dark, I wonder how many of us have started to wonder if God's promises are really going to be enough for us. It becomes increasingly easy for us, doesn't it, to put God and his promises under the microscope. You see, we need to know that the God of the Bible really is trustworthy if we're going to put our trust in him and follow him through whatever chaos that we're facing. And over this, uh, this series in Genesis so far, we've actually seen Abraham and his wife Sarah in the thick of these kinds of questions. They've been waiting for literal decades for God's promises to come true. God's seemingly impossible promises of blessing through the gift of a child at the age of about 100 years old. And finally, finally, they begin to see 
Those promises of God become reality before their very eyes. Sarah gives birth to her son, Isaac, decades after this shouldn't have been a biological possibility. And she names her son Isaac, which means he laughs. This is a reference not only to the joy that her her new baby boy has brought her, but also the journey from bitter and painful unbelief to the beautiful and astounding disbelief that God's miraculous gift has brought her. God has turned tears into laughter. And finally, now, they can begin to see the possibilities of the rest of God's promises. You know, the ones that through this son would come God's people in his place and join his blessing. Those promises coming true. The clouds of confusion are parting and the rays of hope are beginning to break through. And yes, Abraham and uh, Sarah's story has been full of divine intervention. But at the same time, it's actually a really human story, isn't it? They're not perfect models of faith or obedience. Their faith goes up and down, and they try and short-circuit God's way time and time again, making the same mistakes. And I think it can be tempting, can't it, to kind of push back at the call to faith that we might see in the story of Abraham by saying, you know, that was Abraham. You know, he's the example of faith in the Bible. That sort of thing is just beyond me and you and real people. But the more we look at his story, the, the clearer I think it becomes that Abraham's story is our story. He isn't a superhuman. He hasn't got super faith. He's a human. He's weak. He's often cowardly. He's every single one of us. And so here we are. We arrive in Genesis chapter 22, and God says in verse 2, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, so there's no wriggle room, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. You're kind of half expecting, aren't you, Abraham to be saying at this point, are you kidding? Is this, is this some kind of sick joke? This, this little boy that Abraham and his wife have waited for so long for, who's now like this cheeky little teenager who's going to be the channel for the hope of the whole world, kill him. When everything, everything was so close, just pack it all in and give up. While, while this is a story about Abraham, it's also a story about God and about what he can do. Over the 40, kind of the 40 plus years that have passed, yes, since chapter 12, but also over the span of history. I think it's worth saying at this point as well that many of us will have heard people criticize the God that they see in the Old Testament as being kind of like brutal and bloodthirsty especially when you compare him to like the nice Jesus, meek and mild. Um, and you might have actually heard people use passages like this one to, to make that point as like evidence that the Jesus God in the New Testament is much more friendly, much nicer than the Old Testament God. But I want to say right at the outset that Jesus is everywhere in this passage. In fact, it's only by seeing Jesus in this chapter that we can actually really begin to make sense of it. Because 
what I think we can see here isn't just God's test of Abraham's faith. It is that, but it's also God's display of his own faithfulness. It's God's test of Abraham's faith, and it's God's display of his own faithfulness. So, right at the beginning of our chapter, we're left in no doubt that God is testing Abraham. It's right there in verse 1. The word test, you can also kind of uh, read it as try or prove. It's a, it's a bit like when a, a product is described as like tried and tested. Um, you, you know, you know, we know it's up to the task. It's withstood the challenges that have, that have been thrown at it. Um, or maybe like uh, when, they, when they send a rocket into space, they don't just kind of pick things off the shelf and throw it together. Every single nut or bolt goes through this kind of rigorous testing process because they know that failure can be catastrophic. And this test, Abraham's test, is like nothing else on earth. That's the impossible of any father, let alone of Abraham, whose hopes all rest on this child. And if Abraham goes ahead, then doesn't that seem to put God's own promises in jeopardy as well? God was really clear in chapter 17 that it's Isaac who's going to be the chosen child. There were no backup options as far as God is concerned. So what's he doing? What's he doing asking this of Abraham? But, verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Abraham, the faithless. Abraham, the coward. Gets up the very next day and he obeys God. God doesn't give Abraham a deadline, in the text at least, uh, uh, but he does it immediately, the very next morning, even early. I don't think it was easy for him either. Uh, the, the way the verse describes him getting ready is kind of quite confused. So he kind of gets up and he packs all his bags, but he hasn't like, gathered any of the wood for the, for the offering. It's, this isn't the description of somebody who's like, totally clear and chill about what's been asked, what, what's been asked of him. These clouds of confusion that had begun to part have returned. And in spite of all of this, Abraham's response reveals to all of us everything that he has learned over the years. Firstly, Abraham treasures God beyond anything else. Again, there's some big clues in our passages as to why God has asked for Isaac. You can see it in verse 2. Take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. God repeats that passage again and again in verses 12, verse 15. God is asking Abraham for the one thing he can't imagine life without. I don't know what it is for you. Um, Maybe it's a person or a possession. Maybe it's kind of like a possible sort of future circumstance. It's the the thing that you'd be willing to sacrifice for to go without other stuff for. That thing that if, maybe if it were taken away from you, life just might look a little bit less meaningful. When God tests Abraham's faith, he's asking Abraham what he treasures most. Is it Isaac? Or is it God? I think it's important to make really clear here, actually, that when we read the Bible, we, we see really, really time and time again that the true God isn't interested in human sacrifice. In fact, he hates it. 
he hates it. And that's not a contradiction of this, this chapter. In fact, it kind of makes sense as to why he steps in at the end to, to stop him at the last moment. He doesn't want us to sacrifice our children at his altar. So I'll try and fix this a little bit. I think it's, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, yeah, he doesn't want us to sacrifice his, um, our children at his altar. But he also isn't willing to be sacrificed at the altar of our children, or of anything else for that matter. Faith, according to God, looks like treasuring him above and beyond anything else. Uh, take a moment uh, just to think to yourself where that, might, that, where that challenge might land for you. What is the thing that your heart is most likely to treasure above and beyond anything else? Where is the grip of your heart the tightest? Uh, when we say loudly together, everything I have is yours, God. What is the thing at the back of our minds where we're tempted to say, but not that. Everything, but not that. When God is calling us to place our faith in him, he's not just asking us to believe like a number of true sentences about him. Faith in God is the unmoving conviction that to have him is genuinely to have enough. That if he were all we had, we will be filled to the brim with blessing. Uh, the, the great lie that we've been told from the beginning of Genesis in chapter 3 and going throughout the rest of the Bible has always been the lie that God is not enough, that we need more than what he is. The great sin of unbelief in the Bible isn't just failing to believe like certain true facts about God. It's also the failing to treasure that true God above everything else and everyone else. And don't get me wrong, though, it's, it's not me saying that, you know, what God's like doesn't really matter. It really does matter that our faith is in the true God and not a distortion. And this isn't just for, like, academic reasons. It's not like an Old Testament RE GCSE where if you make some mistakes about things that don't feature much in your day-to-day -day life, you'll get into trouble. Knowing what God is like really matters because knowing who God is and what he is like is what is going to enable us to trust him. This couldn't be any clearer, actually, than in the story of Abraham, could it? Abraham has had ups and downs throughout his journey of faith, but God has been consistently and repeatedly and unrelentingly faithful. Even when Abraham least deserves it, I don't know if you remember last week, if you were here, uh, Abraham has thrown his wife under the bus again in order to save his own skin. He's lied again and hedged to protect himself. And you might think it's, this is the perfectly reasonable time for God to just leave Abraham to his own devices, to see how far his lies are going to get him. But God is more faithful to his promises than Abraham is faithless to believe them. He steps in again to protect Abraham. He safeguards not just the household of faith, whatever faith Abraham is demonstrating at that point, but he also steps in to maintain his own promises. Last week, Abraham didn't just put his wife at risk, but he also came 
dangerously close to abandoning the one channel that God had declared blessing was going to come through. Even if Abraham had survived uh, through his lies, he would have been alone in the desert with no promised son to speak of. But God is faithful to his promises again and again. And now, this impossible son has arrived, and God has proved himself once again to be the true and faithful God. The one who can bring life out of nothing at all. And over the literal decades that this story has been taking, this faithfulness has been at work in Abraham. And when we get to our chapter, chapter 22, Abraham hasn't unlocked everything there is to know about God. As Abraham climbs the mountain with Isaac, you can almost hear all these unspoken questions kind of rattling around Abraham's mind. He doesn't have all the answers. But over the years, with example after example of God's faithfulness, Abraham knows what God is like. Uh, You could put it like this, I think. You don't need to know what God is doing to know what God is like. You don't need to know what God is doing to know what God is like. I think, actually, there's a a real sense of this in this chapter. Um, In verse 5, Abraham tells his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. There's this confidence that just as two people will walk up that mountain, two people are going to walk back down. Abraham knows his son is going to return, but he has no idea how. A couple of verses later, Isaac himself asks, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's answer, God himself will provide the lamb. As we close in on the climax of this story, there is no lamb presenting itself. And as time itself seems to slow down in verses 9 and 10, when there's no alternative seeming to come up for Isaac, and you can feel the confusion and the pain as Abraham goes ahead with this impossible task, has he given up hope? According to the writer to the Hebrews, not one bit. He wrote, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Even here, underneath every single one of his questions, Abraham knows God. God has proved himself to be faithful. And Abraham is confident that his blessed son will walk down the mountain with him. Even if it means God raising him from the dead. Of course, it's true that um, Abraham's sins and his doubts, and they're inherited by Isaac and, and, and beyond. But so is his faith, I think. Abraham couldn't have done what is described in this story if Isaac didn't let him. Let's not forget that Abraham's well over... 100, maybe 113 years old by this point in the story. And Isaac is much stronger than him. That's why he's carrying all this wood on his own back, so that his elderly dad can concentrate on just getting up the mountain. You can almost hear the conversation, can't you? It's all right, Dad, you can carry the knife. But um, Abraham is not going to be able to suddenly overpower his son, wrestle him to the ground, tie him up, stick him on top of all the wood, 
that he was too weak to even carry up the mountain. Somehow, over the years, Isaac has seen from his dad the testimony of the faithfulness of God. And when it comes to this test, he believes that God is trustworthy. Abraham and Isaac don't know how God is going to come through in this moment. But they do know their God. And so they set their sights on him, even in their confusion. And it's at this point that God reveals himself to them. It's the point in the scene where time has slowed almost to this standstill, where the answers aren't anywhere to be seen, that God himself steps in. When we get to verse 10, as Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now, that, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Down the more down the mountain walk two figures, back to the waiting servants, back to their shelter in the midst of the Philistines, back to waiting on the rest of God's promises to come good. But they aren't the same two people who walked up that mountain. Down the mountain walk two people who've been tried and tested and who by clinging to God in the midst of their chaos and their confusion, they've seen God come through. And that's why Abraham calls this mountain the Lord will provide. From this kind of nick of time intervention to the ram that's been like, oh, so conveniently caught in this thicket, God hasn't abandoned his people. And in response to Abraham's faith, God says to Abraham, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and, stand, and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. It's as we place ourselves in the hands of God that we're able to know what it means. That he's trustworthy. And just as the author of Hebrews says, we see in Abraham and Isaac a sort of life come back from death. But not just this kind of like bouncing back to what they had before, but this fruitful and abundant and overflowing life that outnumbers stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. It is abundant life from death. And Abraham is an example to us because he held on to God's future promise, even when he had no idea how God is going to come through. But as if that weren't enough for us, if, as if you know, the promises of God in his, in his word to Abraham weren't enough. If we follow the trajectory of Abraham's gaze further on, we'll see that it doesn't come to land on Isaac. There is another promised son arriving through another impossible birth. Abraham, whether he knew it or not, was completely spot on. And he said, 
in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb. I don't think it was a coincidence that when they see the animal in the thicket, it's not a lamb. It's not described as one. It's a ram. Once again, we're seeing that Abraham's gaze is coming to land further ahead, somewhere far better. Not just in this burnt offering on this mountain, but in the only acceptable sacrifice. Another son would come, born of an even greater promise. And as a result of the wood that he carried on his back, he's going to bring blessing to the entire earth. Through, sorry, though Abraham receives Isaac back from the dead in a sense, in Jesus, the promised son of God, we're seeing the ultimate life, life to the full, brought from the ultimate death. And if we want to know the faithfulness of God, it is good for us to follow Abraham and to call to mind God's faithfulness in our own lives. But we can't stop until we land where God's promises land. If we want to know the faithfulness of God, we need to fix our gaze on Jesus. And once again, that feels like quite a fairly safe Christian thing to say, doesn't it? To, to encourage us all to put our faith in God, to fix our gaze on Jesus. But the Bible's understanding of faith, the faith that draws that God draws out of Abraham is not passive here. It's not just words. And it's, not just, um, it's not just absent-minded thinking. It doesn't just exist in your thinking and nowhere else. It's like, it's like dynamite. It, it begins in the realm of our beliefs, and it has shockwaves that ripple out into every corner of our lives. As well as our passage in Hebrews, there's another part of the New Testament that explores the nature of Abraham's faith. Uh, it's a little less popular, but uh, the book of James writes, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And I think we can kind of understand this quite instinctively in Abraham's, um, uh, in Abraham's story, but also in our areas of our own lives, can't we? I can't really say that I love my wife and I, my kids. Uh, I can't just repeat that without actually loving them. Unless I move from saying those things to actually loving them, then my words are just that. They're words. Faith in the faithful God looks like actively holding on to God's promises, not just knowing the right answers. If we're to say with our words that we treasure and trust God beyond anything else, then there should be receipts. So what does that look like for us? Where will those, those shot waves kind of extend into our lives, into our actions? If I were to begin the sentence, faith looks like treasuring God above, what is the ending that causes our hearts to skip a beat? What word at the end of that sentence might keep us up at night? And for some of us, this might not actually be all that academic. It might be that as we talk about this, the pain isn't theoretical, it's, it's real, it's raw. And, and if that's true, then I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if your response to what I've just said is skeptical at, at best. You know, considering what I'm going through, considering what life looks like for me, how on earth could I entrust myself to God? How in the world could I hope to see this kind of faith if I can barely bring myself to sing along to the words that we sang earlier, you comfort those in need. If I, can't bring myself to, if I can barely bring myself to say those things, how can I ima ever imagine having that kind of faith? 
And if that's you, if the pain is real, and faith, that kind of faith feels like a far-off dream, then I want to say that this story is good news for you. You see, Abraham and Isaac, as confused as they were, they never walked up that mountain on their own. As unsure as the future looked, they were hemmed in on every side by their faithful God. And in this, they're an example to us. In the, you know, they're in the confusion and the chaos, they're recalling the character of God, the one who had never dropped them. They remembered the true promises of God and they clung to them. What makes this hard for me personally is that I actually, I think what I do is I, I switch God's actual promises, um, the promises that he's given to us, for ones that I'd rather have. You see, I would rather live with comfort and wealth and good health. And so I often convince myself that these are the things that God offers me. And when I do that, I'm putting God on trial for a breach of contract that he never signed. So when money gets tight, or when the future, when my future is unsure, I'm tempted to believe that he has reneged on a deal that he never actually made. Instead, I need to remember what God has actually promised me, that, that neither death nor life, uh, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God. And these promises are rooted not only in what God has done in my life, as if that wasn't enough, not only in what he's said, as if I needed anything more to go on, but ultimately these promises are rooted in his son, in Jesus. And so Abraham is an example, not just as he walks up that mountain, but as he walks back down as well. Abraham leaves Moriah, the mountain, not trusting in the ram that God had provided, but in the lamb that God would one day provide. If we want to keep going in the chaos and in the confusion, then we have to do the same. We have to root the faithfulness of God in his promised son. At the top of the mountain, Abraham saw God bringing about abundant life and blessing, in a sense, from death. But he also looked ahead, by faith, to another mountain, to another son, who through his, his ultimate death would bring about abundant life and blessing for the whole world. I'm going to pray in a moment. And after that, we're going to sing. We're going to sing again of a faithful God, one who has never changed, who has never dropped a ball, who offers us strength for what we face today and hope for whatever lies ahead. No other treasure is going to come close to that. But as I pray, why don't we also use the words of that song to declare to each other, to our own souls, the faithfulness of that God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are entirely trustworthy. Uh, you are not entirely com comprehensible. We, we cannot claim to know what you are doing all the time. We cannot claim to know uh, your wise plans, but we know you are wise. We know you are good. We know you are kind. We thank you that you've shown us that time and time again in your word. We thank you that you've shown it in our lives. We thank you especially for Jesus, the, the truest and realest expression of your faithfulness to us. Help us to respond to that with joy and faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.